you are listening to My City, My Health, the podcast. So welcome to the Healthy Project podcast, My City, My Health edition. Today, I'm your host, Lauren Whiteman, and I am a student at the University of Iowa studying health promotion. My classmates and I are supporting the My City, My Health conference in Iowa City on April 28th, 2023. That brings the University of Iowa and Iowa City quarter community together to discuss health equity programs and collaborations. Registration is open at mycity.health. Today, I get to interview Dr. Ebony Johnson, who has done amazing work with research within diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm excited about this conversation and think you will be too. So let's get right into it. Please just give the audience a brief background on who you are and what health equity means to you. Hello, I'm Ebony Johnson. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health in the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. And for me, health equity is centered on health is a human right, and we all have the right to be our full and best selves, and that the environment around us to support health. I think that health is health and achieving health equity is more than just the individual behavior change and the individual behaviors that we may associate with nutrition and physical activity, but it also includes um, environmental supports such as clean air, access to healthy nutrition. So to me, health equity means achieving health for all, despite uh, the disparities that may exist across populations and minimizing or eliminating those disparities so that everyone has access to a full and beautiful quality of life. You hit a lot of great topics within that. Another one that resonates with me is just making sure they have that chance to achieve that optimal health. Yes. And then what prompted your interest in research with individuals at risk for chronic diseases and substance abuse? Yes. So um, I had my undergraduate background in psychology and I pursued my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. And the field of rehabilitation counseling really looks at how we can improve quality of life for individuals living with or at risk of developing chronic illness or disability. And they really, um, that particular discipline takes a social determinants of health lens, primarily looking at the economic sector and employment as a social determinant of health. So some of my training really geared me in this direction, particularly my master's training. And then after receiving my master's degree, I became a medical case manager for our Ryan White program. So that's an HIV AIDS case management program that is sponsored by the U.S. government uh, of the Department of Health and Human Services. And so the agency I worked for actually was Volunteers of America. And I was, like I said, an HIV case manager. So So one of the things I would do is first thing, once I got a caseload is being sure the person had access to medical care and make sure they had access to their antiretroviral medication, but that's just not enough. So after that, we took more of a holistic case management approach, really focusing on housing and access to nutrition and goods. So I spent a lot of my time in the field, in communities. I oftentimes would meet my uh, clients at their doctor's appointments. I would meet them at home instead of in the office because I really wanted to see what the environment around them looked like because that gave me a a more holistic overview. And so that work really um, impacted me. I loved it. But one of my, uh, my supervisor, she did something that was incredible to me. She sent us all to a training. It was sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which 
also funds my project now. So this is me um, as a medical case manager. And they really talked about how um, that particular training talked about how um, so many people that qualify for um, economic supports through the social security system oftentimes can't access it because they don't have stable housing, which would mean a stable address to get the communication from the social security administration. So uh, they gave us like a pathway to kind of bridge that gap. And I came and told my supervisor about it and she wrote a grant to connect supports for, she labeled that position benefits counselor. So she applied to a local agency and she saw, so she saw a problem. She sent us to training. We came back and said what we learned and she wrote a grant to solve the problem. And so seeing her as she's a black woman do that, it really like sparked something in me. So I always knew I wanted to go to pursue my PhD, but that was kind of like the the thing that pushed me. So mm. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and enrolled in a rehabilitation psychology doc program, which also has that uh, discipline-specific lens of improving quality of life for persons living with or at risk of developing chronic illness and disability. And so I was able to get more structured training in health promotion, health equity. Um, and so really that that story, I'm smiling thinking about it now because Shamel Levine, she just doesn't know how much he impacted me just seeing that actionable like we see a deficit we see something that can be done and then I'm going to take an action step in order to do structural change and of course at that time I didn't have the language that I'm describing right now but it really sparked me and that ripple effect can be seen throughout my work right now totally I think you also just demonstrated how important representation is and seeing yes. ourselves in those higher spaces yes because uh, when we see ourselves then we're like oh that'll spark something well she can do it I can do it too exactly <laughs> and then how has your experience as a black woman impacted your experience in healthcare? my personal experience in healthcare, it, it, it's very interesting so I always try to it's something that I do when I'm in a physician's office. Oftentimes, you know, you'll have that kind of conversation about who are you? What do you do? And I'm always very vague in those responses because I do think that social class impacts how folks treat you in those spaces. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a doctor's office and someone asks me where I work, I'll just say at the university, what do you do? <laughs> I teach. I'm very, very broad because I want to see like what my reaction how healthcare providers will react to me seeing my positionality as a Black woman in these spaces, particularly because I've heard from Black women in these spaces about what their healthcare experiences are. So I oftentimes see that and experience it, experience it myself about not being listened to, not being validated. And then, especially if you're in treatment for a while, along the way, they'll find out that, oh, she's a professor. And then all of a sudden, your health care experience is a little different. I see that through my own experiences in the healthcare system. So I've always believed women's stories and when they tell me about these experiences, but I also had that same lived experience. Mm -hmm. I had the fear of two high-risk pregnancies and knowing um, maternal a child health outcomes, that fear. Mm -hmm. I have the fear of, you know, we are so, uh, unfortunately, Black women are so Im impacted by health disparities such as diabetes and hypertension and living with type 2 diabetes myself, you know, that gives me a lens. So I'm always listening to 
people's stories, but the way I ask questions oftentimes is based on some of the lived experiences that I have, that my family members have. And I just try to integrate those experiences, my own lived experiences, those of my family, those of my friends with the empirical literature and data, and then also with I get from qualitative interviews and being in the field and doing some of the work that I do. So all that kind of shapes my (laughs) uh, responses. I was just looking at some interviews today and I won't give some, you know, specifics about where those interviews came from, but a, a black woman, and it was a quote. And one of them said, it's just like, there's the stigma of being black in the healthcare system. You don't want to be perceived as a black woman on welfare. And so mm-hmm. these things are coming through in the stories that women tell us about their health and their healthcare experiences. So I was just looking at interview transcripts this morning. So that question really uh, resonates with me. So thanks for asking. It's one thing too to hear about, and it's another thing to experience it firsthand. You know. Yes, Uh, and I even want to hit on when I was a case manager. You know, one we didn't have to go to medical appointments with our uh, clients. We oftentimes will go to the first one just to be sure that they were comfortable with. you know, care and it it can be tough getting a new diagnosis of HIV. So just to be that bridge, but oftentimes they would say like, I'm not comfortable or I don't even know the questions to ask. Or when I ask these questions, unfortunately, I'm rushed kind of out of the appointment. So I saw my role then as like an advocate, like, what do you want to discuss in this appointment? And I'm going to be sure that your voice is heard. So me coming in there with someone saying that, hey, I'm their case manager, that, you know, I try to, um, you know, mitigate some of the barriers in place. Right. So, you know, you would think that you would just need to do it in those initial moments, but no, that was just something really, really sustained throughout And oftentimes women will also tell us, um, and I know I'm I'm talking a lot about HIV right now, it's just that um, the HIV healthcare system is very, very supportive and non-stigmatizing, but because populations that are often impacted by HIV also are often impacted by other health conditions and disparities, it's when they step out of that safe um, HIV healthcare space into the other spaces where they experience those barriers that we know really impact a person's health. Because all you have to be, one thing physicians and healthcare providers have to know is you just have to be mistreated one time to lose that connection. And mm-hmm. then that person no longer wants to even be associated with the healthcare system. And then they end up like negating all the preventative care that could be things that prolong life down the line. So um, that initial encounter and that sustained encounter within these healthcare systems are so important. People need to be heard and validated. It's just so important. I'm just curious, as a case manager, how did the physicians react when you would show up and advocate and communicate for your clients? I always thought the uh, response was very, very receptive. But once again, I also believe the response of the people that I worked with to say that when you're not in this space, this is what the encounters look like. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm asking you to enter this space um, so that I understand what's going on. Um, and it's just sometimes reviewing labs. So sometimes medical appointments are so quick and we give so much information to folks. And if there's like a, a health literacy deficit, that doesn't mean a literacy deficit. That's just health literacy. Like, what do these labs mean? What does this mean for my health moving forward? And if that education isn't provided, 
then you leave an appointment sometimes overwhelmed by what you've been given. It may be given to you with not enough tact or support Um, because a diagnosis is huge or even like people think, you know, like there's medication advances and we have the things to treat it. But like a medication regimen changes your whole quality of life if you have to eat at certain times a day. Like all of that stuff matters. It's more nuanced than I go to a doctor, I get a pres- I get some labs, I get a prescription. Uh, this is what, what I do to treat my condition. It's more nuanced than that. And I think greater attendance to that nuance is important. <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, a patient going in and getting a diagnosis and the physician not explaining to them what that means. They're just like, hey, here's your diagnosis, send you home on to the next patient. Yeah. I don't know. That's just not providing them trust. Most definitely. And this is not, you know, I don't want to say that this is the experience across healthcare systems, but that this is, these are challenges that are embedded in certain healthcare systems that we have to address. Um, And I know that that's a hard thing to hear, especially when we think we're doing our best. (laughs) And so that's the thing that's, uh, I think when you're doing any type of like advocacy work that you hear both sides of a story or multiple sides of a story. And it's just like, no, you know, I did this training um, in this community and I want to help and I'm doing this to help. So you see it through your lens, right? (laughs) And then your uh, patients or your clients or however you uh, deem them in your profession, they see it through their lens. And then there's a disconnect. So you can be given, but it might not be received. And so how do we bridge that? So, um, you know, I, I know sometimes uh, healthcare providers will say that, you know, we're dumping on them, <laughs> but it's oftentimes, I think if you're giving and it's not being received, then there's something, you know, there's a disconnect that has to be bridged. And I think it's tapping into what you mentioned earlier about viewing things holistically, like you said, things at both sides. And going into that, I did some research about your organization, PEER, and I know they're doing great work for prevention of HIV, like you mentioned, and abuse prevention. Can you just tell me how that came about? Yes. So I'm a Southern University graduate. So that was where my master's uh, program in rehabilitation counseling came from. So I've always had that connection to Southern University. And I actually had my first faculty appointment there. I worked there four years as an assistant professor before coming to the University of Iowa. So I've always maintained that connection. And my first two years here, I even still did some adjunct work at Southern before my workload here uh, picked up a little too much. So I had to let that go. But I never, I love Southern and I've never lost that connection with the university. So I knew um, when we saw the announcement for um, this kind of like prevention peer navigation grant from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and just my former experience as an HIV case manager in Baton Rouge, because Louisiana is my home state. I Never, uh, mentioned that before. I just knew that this was the perfect opportunity to bridge the HIV um, community-based organization sector, Southern University, and leverage the infrastructure of a larger research institution in order to execute something like this. So we started some initial meetings and co-wrote the grant together, which was a great experience. And we launched, uh, right, <laughs> we found out we were funded in August and COVID happened that what that March. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really difficult to like think how we were going to do community outreach when, you know, there was so much uncertainty in the world at that particular point in time. But we navigated through those challenges and the program is just 
it, it's taken off. Um, I think the heart of peer is the community engagement. We have a phenomenal lead navigator who's superwoman and uh, <laughs> black woman, Milan Jackson, she's superwoman. She does everything. And I, I, she's built so much trust with communities on campus, starting with listening to student organizations. And we are able to be so successful, I think, with uh, particularly with HIV testing is because we partner so often with the historically Black organizations like fraternities and sororities in order to execute these events. Um, so for instance, Sigma Gamma Rho sorority does a cupcakes and condoms. So they buy the cupcakes, we buy the condoms, and then they go out on campus and uh, disseminate those kind of prevention materials or whenever we do bi-monthly HIV testing on campus instead of asking folks to go to the community-based organizations. We bring um, a mobile unit to campus with uh, two organizations, Open Health, and then the Capital Area Reentry Program. So whenever we do testing, we always partner with the student org. So some of the sororities and fraternities have been helpful. The um, Planned Parenthood, the university chapter has been so helpful. So I think community engagement is at the heart of peer. Right now, uh, it's Spring Fest at Southern University. And today, every HIV case management agency in the city has a table on campus to talk about what their organizations do, um, the type of health care that they provide. And so that is really a beautiful thing to see. So I think the heart of peer is community engagement and having a solid community advisory board across the HIV stakeholder spectrum and really kind of doing what they say. You mentioned how it started around a little bit before COVID. Well, so COVID happened that March 2020, I believe. Uh -huh. And we found out we were funded that August for a start date. And so Southern University was in even back on campus yet that full year they were online. So a lot of what we did for implementation was just like hearing people's stories <laughs> for one. Um, we tried to do you know some webinars and things. We went into some communities and did some billboard campaigns because people were, what folks were saying is like, all you really do is drive around to get out of the house. <laughs> and so we put some billboards in black communities. And then as things started to slowly shift around that spring semester, classes were still online, but they started to kind of start you know, teasing how to bring students back to campus. And so we started just doing some tabling events at that point, having some snacks and some and just some materials. But we really just tried to take that year to really do some strategic implementation planning. Um, and at that time, the uh, HIV agencies were also figuring out what to do in terms of how do we continue HIV services and how can we be innovative. And so there's uh, at-home testing kits that you can take. One of them is called OraQuix. So there's a lot of dissemination of those. And we still disseminate OraQuix as well. They're donated to us from an organization called Metro Health. And things are so innovative now. You take an OraQuix, you do a QR code, you get linked into an at-home testing coordinator. Um, so it's just like uh, the community organizations in Baton Rouge really leverage technology and innovation in order to do some of that outreach. And we just learn from them 
and did whatever we could do to support some of the efforts of organizations that were already in existence while we tried to build our program. So I think one of the things for Peer, we never try to duplicate services. And we always say, because in terms of sustainability, you know, <laughs> Peer is a five-year grant. We hope that it continues and we hope yeah. that the funding agency continues to fund that mechanism. But if not, how can we still have this HIV and substance use prevention initiative on campus? So that sustainability component is so important for us. And that is a, a main focus. So that's why it's important for us when organizations come for testing, that they're connected to a university infrastructure and not just peer. So that way, you know, like we want peer, like I said, to exist forever, but if it doesn't, there's already the connection to sustain these efforts um, long-term. I even like the idea of the QR code. That's so smart because we're using QR codes for everything now. Yes, most oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what happens with testing too. Um, students will come because we want there to be trust. So we don't get any information from the tester, but we do provide like a gift card for coming out. So we'll just have them take a QR code. So we never get their results. We just know if they tested that day. So once they get off the mobile uh, bus, they can scan a QR code that lets us know that they were tested and we disseminate an e-gift card to them just for those efforts. So that's something that was really important for Southern University students to have that disconnect between whether or not we know their status. Um, so that's why we really needed to have solid partnerships with organizations that already have embedded case management services so that we know that if there's a positive test, they're going to get the wraparound support and we can trust that agency to provide it. So we're the mechanism to link them to testing. And then once they get their result, we know that they're taken good care of. And you, like you said, you're providing them with the e-gift card too. So that's like a nice incentive. Yes, yes. <laughs> to you as well. Yes, most definitely. Well, I guess my last question is, what would you say is the biggest thing you would like listeners to take away from our conversation today? My biggest thing is to achieve health equity, all stakeholders have to be at the table and all voices have to be heard. And I know... <laughs> I'm a professor, right? We think we know everything sometimes. <laughs> but I, I, my, I just wish that we would take more uh, people in academia, people in more senior positions in healthcare leadership, more of a facilitator, consultative role and shift power dynamics to empowering communities. Because so much of what Peer does, I, I talked about Milan, like she's on the ground, I'm here to support. So it doesn't matter that my title says project director, she's the heart of Peer. My goal working at UI is to support so that she has everything she needs because the community trusts her. And so that's, if we could kind of shift some of those power dynamics to empower trusted members in communities to do this work and, and supply them with all the resources, whether that's education, whether it's like tangible resources that you can actually give someone, that I think is going to make more sustainable change going forward than outside coming in. Let's build the end works <laughs> outward. And so that's what I really think is going to help to achieve health equity, um, empowering communities to do the work themselves. <laughs> so that's my, yeah, that's my takeaway. So we, we're a facilitator and I think we should be in the background and we should come into the foreground when, when it's requested of us. 
and not assume that we have that expertise, if that if that makes sense. Totally. And I mean, I think you're doing an excellent job of it already with Project Peer. Thank you for your time today. And I know I'm excited to have gained a deeper understanding about you and your amazing research within health equity. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you.